This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Shannon Service, an investigative reporter and producer. It's really hard to explain or overstate how just normal this had become. I mean, this practice of slavery and forced labor has been going on over 20 years in Thailand, and it's on a scale that it's just how things are done. Shannon has done work for the BBC, PBS, National Public Radio, The Guardian of London, Slate, and Newsweek, among others. She has reported from Iraq, Israel, Palestine, and Croatia on everything from the ravages of war to the intimacies of heartbreak. She co-produced a series for Morning Edition about slavery on Thai fishing boats. The documentary and virtual reality films she directed on the same subject, Ghost Fleet, went to Telluride, Sundance, Berlin, and Toronto International Film Festivals. She has won several awards, including an Edward R. Murrow Award, a National Press Photographers Association Award, a Best New Director Award, and a Knight Award for Best Narrative Science Journalism. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Like I was mentioning earlier, I'm so moved and chilled by your documentary, Ghost Fleet, and Before we dive in, I really want to encourage all of our listeners to watch this incredibly important film. The images and the faces of the people I met through the film, they've been with me. They've been looking at me in my mind's eye, and it's a film that really touches our humanity in such a strong way, and these people, these modern-day slaves are not sacrifice people. They're real people. And it's so important that we take the time to give them the respect of learning about what's happening to them. And you've done such an incredible job in opening our eyes. So thank you so much, Shannon. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and the openness that you approach the film with. And I'm really excited to be with you here today. So Mm -hmm. thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. So our conversation today will dig into issues surrounding the Thai fishing industry. And though many of us may have read an article or two about overfishing or exploitation within the seafood trade, I think the real depths of these abuses remain quite obscured within our everyday lives. And your film, Ghost Fleet, exposes the dark side of illegal and unregulated fishing, immersing viewers into the story of human trafficking and slavery at sea. And for listeners who haven't seen the film, I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of a background on the central issues of the documentary and describe the journey that men face when tricked or trafficked onto these fishing vessels. The film follows a really remarkable woman named Patima, and she is Thai herself. She found out about slavery in ways that I can describe a little bit later, but she found out about slavery at sea inside the Thai fishing fleet and was so outraged that she wanted to do something about it. She and her husband, Sompong, 
So the film follows her and her right-hand guy, Tun Lin, who himself was enslaved for over a decade, as they go out and they scour these remote islands in Indonesia, where men who've been enslaved on these fishing boats, they'll see land. Sometimes after a decade, they won't see land at all for many, many, many years. And as soon as they see land, they'll jump ship. They end up scattered all over these islands, not just in Indonesia, but our film follows Patama and Tunlin as they take an expedition to a particular group of islands where there are a lot of men. And they're looking for castaways, people who've been completely cut off from their family and from their homeland for a long time so they can reunite them with their families and bring them home. So these are two really incredible heroes. And we're with them in Verite, which is documentaries speak for real time. You're actually with them on the journey as they're going on this boat from island to island looking for men. And so we really try to use this incredible heroism of these environmental and human rights heroes to get into the darker subject of slavery at sea, which in effect really fundamentally is an environmental issue. What happened was that Thailand has one of the biggest fishing fleets in the world. They're one of the major suppliers to the U.S. and the EU. They're usually the top one or two fish suppliers to the U.S. And so they have a massive, massive fishing fleet. And they cleared out the Gulf of Thailand. There's so few fish in the Gulf of Thailand now that it's one of the most barren spots in the ocean. So what that meant for the fishing industry is that boats that used to go out for days or weeks and come back full. It was a good living. Men could come back home to their families. They'd have money in their pocket. They'd share in the catch. Now the boats are going as far away as Ethiopia. They're going down into the Southern Hemisphere from Thailand, which is quite far north. They're going all over the world looking for fish. And what that means is that there's not as much money to be made. It's harder for the men to get home. And Thailand, which is a relatively prosperous country, particularly in Southeast Asia, a lot of the Thai fishermen started leaving the sectors, looking for more family-friendly work where they could make more money. And the fishing industry was suddenly short, tens of thousands of men a year. So instead of fixing the conditions, you know, providing better pay, making sure that men can be flown home, adjusting the way fishing worked, making it safer, instead of all of that, some less scrupulous captains and owners decided to start buying men off of human trafficking gangs and putting them on the boats. And once they're on board, there's nothing but ocean. So boats really make perfect prisons and there's really nothing to do but exactly what the captain says. So it's an incredibly tough situation. You usually have about 10 men living, eating, working inside the space of an 18-wheeler, just a you know semi-tractor trailer. And they often speak different languages or from different countries. They're growing stronger by the day because fishing is very, very strenuous work. They don't want to be there. So it takes a lot of violence to keep the whole situation under control and a lot of psychological strength on behalf of the men to survive it and to help each other. So it's an incredibly pressureful world, full of heroes, but also full of villains. Mm -hmm. I thought about that watching the film. So many of the things you mentioned, but definitely the willpower of these men psychologically to survive out on sea for so long and to keep some form of sanity. There's so many horrible things going on in the world, but watching the film, I I mean, it's hard for me to even speak to the atrocities of it and how I could even relate to what they must be going through, these men who are enslaved. And, and yeah, and Patima, gosh just what an angel. Just to mention again, she's a labor activist and co-founder of the Labor Protection Network. And while she and her team work to rescue these fishermen and obtain compensation for them, and really seems like she also gives a lot of emotional support to these formerly enslaved men. Mm -hmm. I was reading that since 2004, they've rescued over 5,000 Thai and migrant workers. So I'd love to shed more light on the foundation Patima has dedicated her life to building and their critical campaign to prevent trafficking and instances of forced labor. So I'd be curious to know more about how LPN works on the ground and anything you can share about the structure of their intelligence networks and trafficking efforts. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. It's a phenomenal story, actually. Patima and her husband, Sumpong, are labor rights organizers, as you mentioned, and they opened their doors in Bangkok really just 
they thought just to do some migrant labor organizing, you know, like a lot of stronger economies, Thailand attracts migrants from neighboring countries because the Thai bot is so much stronger than their own currency. And there's a lot of stronger economies. There's a lot of exploitation of immigrant workers as well. So they opened their doors to do some labor organizing and they developed a reputation of being very kind, good people inside the immigrant community. And at the time, this was well over 10 years ago, I can't, I can't remember the exact date, but at the time there was absolutely no organization set up for men who'd survived slavery at sea, or even men who'd survived slavery. There's a number of organizations in Southeast Asia for women and children who've survived trafficking and forms of slavery, but none for men. So they had this reputation of being very kind, good Thai people who wanted to help immigrants to get their rights and get what they deserve. And so pretty soon, men started showing up on their doorstep who had been enslaved on these fishing boats. And at first, it was sort of a trickle of men. But after a while, dozens of men started showing up on their doorstep. And they immediately began providing the support services that they were able to. But of course, they're very under-resourced. And one of the things that they began doing was trying to help the men psychologically, because many of them, as we've touched on, have gone through horrors that are just really unimaginable for us, unless you've survived it. And so what that's meant means is that often the men are their own medicine, because it's very difficult to reintegrate into a society that doesn't understand what you've been through. So by keeping the men together and by training the men in different skills. They were able to sort of help each other and heal each other, but their numbers were growing. And pretty soon it became evident that this was a major, major problem and one that was going completely unaddressed sort of in the broader Thai discourse and in the global discourse. So Patama started trying to get the attention of bigger organizations that had more resources and could potentially help but she wasn't really getting traction. And I'm not totally sure why, but I also think it might have sounded a little bit outlandish because essentially the men that were with her were saying, well, I'm actually lucky because I got back and I'm okay relatively, but there were men on my boat who jumped shit and she pulled out a big map and they would circle on the map, like this guy jumped ship here or a couple of people escaped off of my boat onto these remote islands. And I don't even know if there's civilization or what's happening on those islands. And so pretty soon she had this huge map with all of these red circles around all of these islands where she and Sumpong believed men were stranded. And she wasn't really able to get the attention of people who could help. So eventually she said, all right, well, there's a lot of circles around a particular island called Benjina, which for various reasons is a place where a lot of men escape. So she decided to go check it out herself. And she went and found about 200 men on that first rescue and ended up working with a Thai journalist named Yam to help rescue those men and to bring the issue up to attention. So she and Sompong work on this issue in various ways, everything from providing direct services to the men who show up, to finding and rescuing men who are stranded on these islands, reconnecting them with their families. But then, as you also mentioned, when they come home, they need psychological support job training. Often these boys are kidnapped or trafficked when they're 10 or 11, that this is the only skill they really have is fishing. So trying to get them trained into different sectors. And then importantly, really going after the companies that enslave them in the Thai courts. And it's a tough mission because it almost never, I hesitate to say never, because maybe something's happened recently that I don't know, but they almost never win a case against the company. What does happen sometimes is if a guy is injured during his time on board, they can get compensation through the insurance company for the injury, but the companies are almost never actually successfully prosecuted in court. So LPN, Patima's organization, will continue to fight these cases in court, basically to have a public record of the companies that are doing it and to work with the men to at least fight back against the company and try to get justice. They also have become quite central in what has eventually become a global campaign to try to end slavery at sea. Patima is a tireless 
advocate, as well as Sompong going to different governments and different companies and different seafood industry conferences and speaking and really raising the issue of labor in fishing as something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. So they've been working on all of those different fronts. And the latest thing that they're doing, which is actually really inspiring and shows sort of the thoughtfulness and the depth of their approach, is that they have been working with the survivors to train them in organizing so they can become the leaders of their own movement. So now they have what's essentially a fisherman's union led by formerly enslaved fishermen to fight for the rights not just of formerly enslaved fishermen, but of all fishermen, migrant fishermen, Thai fishermen, all fishermen. And it's the first real organizing effort of its kind. They were on the ground doing this before anyone else. So now there's some other groups also working on it. And the final thing they're doing is building a fisherman's center outside of Bangkok. And the men themselves are actually building it. So they're learning construction. It's going to be solar. So they're installing the solar panels. They're going to grow their own food. So they'll learn organic farming. And there's going to be a number of classes and courses and therapy available for the men so that when they return home to their communities, they'll have skills and they'll have been able to stabilize a bit because often the cycle of trauma is so big that if men go back to their communities and they're traumatized and they're isolated and they haven't had support or training, then there's a lot of alcohol and drug abuse. There's physical abuse of wives and family and kids and a lot of ways that the trauma starts to really express itself in ways that are not actually good. So she and Songpong have taken this very, very holistic approach. And by putting the men at the very center, having survivors find survivors, help survivors, train survivors, it's a very kind of deep approach to the entire situation. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> they are so incredible. I have so much love for Patima and her partner. And for those of you who watch the film, you'll just be so grateful for these people. But yeah, it feels important to also ground Ghost Fleet within a broader context and the fishing industry at large, which is rife with exploitation of so many kinds. From what I've read on maritime law, there seems to be this legal gray area on the high seas where egregious crimes can be committed with impunity, whether it be overfishing, the dumping of waste, or human rights abuses. So what makes the fishing trade within this region and more generally so vulnerable to human trafficking, slave labor, and other forms of exploitation? And why is it so hard to track these abuses within the fishing supply chain? Well, you're definitely right that a lot of it comes down to maritime law. Unfortunately, our laws are incredibly outdated. And an example would be that we're still working with a flagging system that's from a couple hundred years ago. And the idea was, you know, in the time of the Spanish Armada, for example, if a boat was flying a Spanish flag and was committing piracy and abuses, then Spain was responsible for that boat. And you knew which country you could actually go to for repair. But unfortunately, we now essentially have a system where countries that don't even have a coastline like Bhutan are flagging boats because they're essentially just collecting money and then flagging the boats, giving them a flag and saying, yeah, sure, we're responsible for you. But it means that you're just driving around the high seas on a boat that doesn't really have any authority or any country behind it that's going to take responsibility for it. And this is sort of an aside, but one recent example of this is with COVID and the cruise industry. There's a number of cruise lines, big well-known cruise lines that are flagged in the Bahamas or other countries where they can avoid taxes, where they can avoid dumping regulations or tight environmental or social or labor practices, right? So you just kind of go to the country that has the least amount of regulation, whether it's environmental or labor, and they'll get their flag there. But then of course, as soon as COVID strikes, they want to be able to dock and have all the protections of the U.S., and the Coast Guard is actually turning them away and saying, no, go to the Bahamas. So it's a bit of a free-for-all. It's kind of like having a whole bunch of license plates out there that don't really mean much. And the cars are just driving around committing all kinds of crimes. So the system itself is kind of one that's had a lot of benign neglect. It's not really in the companies or the government's 
interests at large to regulate them. Not only because it's hard, boats obviously are at sea and it's extremely challenging to track every single boat on the ocean and what it's doing and is it legal, but also, to be completely honest, I mean, the countries and companies benefit from the status quo. So the rampant state of overfishing and illegality is part of what puts so much fish on our plates. And fish is something that is only increasing in popularity. So I think there's a general recognition that if we were to bring some sort of order to the system that would protect the ocean environmentally and protect the men largely men who work the ocean, we'd see a lot less fish. Fish would become a lot more expensive. And I think there's a reluctance to do that. So it's not a case where you have sort of a really well-regulated system with some bad actors in it. It's a really badly regulated system that kind of surprisingly has some good actors in it because the whole thing is set up to not necessarily enforce that. That said, you know, we do have inside certain fisheries, like inside the American fishery, it's a much more well-regulated system. The men are treated better. The fishing equipment is much more environmentally friendly. It's science-driven, so it depends on the fish. The fish population is really high this year, then you can catch X amount. If it's really low, then you have to catch less. So we do have really good fisheries, but the point is that globally, and as soon as you get outside of territorial waters, it's a complete disaster. So I think what's happening inside the Thai fishing industry, of course, is completely outrageous and totally egregious. I mean, it's slavery and getting worse than that, really. And along with slavery comes kidnapping, murder, torture, all the worst crimes that we could possibly imagine happen within the context of slavery. But it's, it would be a mistake to think that this is completely out of the blue. It's sort of the logical extension of a very, very corrupt and crazy system. So in terms of regulation, the UN has been working on trying to redraft the laws of the high seas. And there's, of course, pressures in a lot of different directions. Fisheries, by and large, are not in a good state. Ocean ecosystems are certainly struggling. But at the same time, you know, you have fish as a primary protein source for a lot of countries. And the demand for fish globally is only going up and up. So trying to figure out how to shift this entire system legally is one piece, but then enforcement is a whole other piece. So once you do have the laws on the books, how do you actually enforce them? And that takes a lot of money, honestly. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of willpower. The governments that historically have been looking the other way need to step up and start monitoring their ports, monitoring their boats, figuring out like 10 men got on this boat and the eight got off. What happened to the two men? Where did you actually catch this fish? Can you certify that you didn't go to some other country and steal the fish? Can you show us? Because boats are equipped with systems called VMS or AIS, vessel monitoring systems, that theoretically, if they were on all the time, could show authorities exactly where they've been, can prove that they're not going around stealing fish, stealing men. But we don't make fishing boats keep those on. We make boats, big, big shipping container boats to it, but not fishing boats. So fishing boats really are the least regulated vessels at sea, and they create a whole host of issues. So for example, with Thai fishing, the Gulf of Thailand is the most barren spot in the ocean. So the boats are now going further and further away, and they're stealing fish from other countries, which causes a whole bunch of other issues. So for example, Tan Lin, who's Patima's right-hand guy in Ghost Fleet, he was kidnapped when he was 14. He's Burmese. He was tricked on board. And once he was on board, he was stuck. Immediately, the captain took off for Somalia. Somalia was in a state of complete collapse. And so they couldn't defend their waters. They couldn't really muster a a navy or a coast guard to go out and defend their fisheries. So boats from all over the world, legal and illegal boats, were going to Somalia and stealing their fish. And so Somali fishermen would come out and fire on the boats. So here you have a 14-year-old Burmese boy who's been enslaved on a Thai fishing boat. The Thai fishing captain is stealing fish off the coast of Somalia. Fish is one of the primary protein sources for Somalis. So you have you know, a country that is already struggling with essentially governmental collapse and food insecurity, and now you have all these boats who are coming and stealing one of their most important protein sources. So the fishermen would go out and fire on the boat and try to defend their waters. 
And there's a number of experts who have been able to track that a number of the people who became Somali pirates, who were actually taking over oil tankers and much bigger boats, started out as fishermen who were just trying to protect their fishery. So you had this sort of Johnny Appleseed of destruction thing happening with fishing boats, where they start clearing out one fishery, and rather than learning and going, oh, well, maybe we should manage this fishery better, maybe we should give the ocean some time to regroup, maybe we should figure out ways to sustainably fish, they just go and overfish other countries, and then set off a whole other chain of environmental, social, and food insecurities. So it's a really, really massive problem, but it's an international problem, and it's an international problem that needs an international response. And unfortunately, when it comes to things like climate change and fisheries and anything really that requires all of the countries of the world to come together and really tackle something seriously, we don't seem to be terribly good at it. So there is this giant hole. If you have one country over here that's doing things really well, like for example, the US, and you have a bunch of other countries that are not, then all it really does is make the American fisher folk it puts them at an economic disadvantage, you know, where because the system itself is inherently international and the whole thing needs to be tackled internationally. So it is complicated, but it's not at all impossible. It requires international will and money and seriousness to tackle it. And that's one of the reasons that we made Ghost Fleet as a team. We really believe that slavery is the Achilles heel of the entire system, that if we can really point to how egregious things have gotten on the high seas. The fact is that hundreds of thousands of men, probably deep into the hundreds of thousands of men, have been enslaved to put fish on our plates. So for those who don't necessarily inherently care about the state of the oceans, they might care about that issue, about human rights, about what it actually costs to put fish on our plates. So the whole thing is extremely connected and our hope as a team, we've taken the film to the UN, to Congress, to multiple seafood conferences. We've worked with Patima and Tunwin who addressed all of those bodies to really put a human face on this issue and to start appealing to a much bigger sense of what we need to be doing, both for the oceans and for the people who work them. Thinking more about supply chains, I know that Thailand is one of the world's largest seafood exporters, valued at $6 billion. Much of what is caught ends up halfway around the world in the US or Europe or Japan. And I was also pretty shocked to read that much of what's sold in the US is typically processed into canned cat and dog food or feed for poultry, pigs, and farmed raised fish, even. Mm-hmm. And this reminded me how all of these extractive industries are connected Uh and really feed off one another, from fishing nets to the industrial agricultural system to the pet food complex. Uh And I wonder if you could speak in greater detail about this export-oriented fishing economy, and more specifically, how does the pressure of supplying Western markets with cheap seafood create conditions for the exploitation of both local people and fisheries? Yeah, that's a really good and complicated question. I can tell you that there's a real pressure on fishing companies and fishing boat owners. The fact that the price of fish is really out of their control and there's less and less fish, they have to go further to get the fish. So they have to pay for more fuel, their boats break down more to catch less fish. So they end up, when the price of fish is low, which it can be argued, and actually economists have argued, that the price of fish is artificially low, based both on how little workers are paid and how many government subsidies are given to the industry. All of that conspires to basically 
keep an industry alive that really shouldn't be because the price of fish is just way too low. And so you have all of these pressures on the companies to try to kind of figure out, well, how can I make this work? And ultimately, a lot of companies make it work by not paying their men at all or paying them extremely little, cutting corners on safety, and also cutting corners, honestly, on healthy, good ways of transporting fish. So there's a lot of kind of danger in how fish moves through the supply chain. It's not always up to the standards that we would like to believe, right? Because everybody's cutting corners all the time to try to meet this price point that's extremely hard to meet. I've talked to a number, I'm basically an oceans journalist, so I've talked to a number of people on all sides, including companies and fishing ministers. And there is a consensus among a lot of the people that I've talked to that the price of fish is just really really too low. And that creates a lot of the pressures downstream in terms of how the fishing industry works. So I think there's an argument to a pushback that says, well, does that mean that only rich people should afford fish? And I think for a long time, that was kind of the case. If you think back even just to the 50s, you know, fish was a luxury item. And now it's something that people sort of expect every day. And I don't think anybody wants to see a situation where only rich people can afford fish. But The flip side of that is that the way that we in Western countries are getting the fish is actually more often depriving countries like Senegal and Somalia and countries in South America for whom fish has always been the primary most important protein and the one that's most available. Those fisheries are collapsing or the fish is being stolen. So we need to sort of look at it again in this bigger context of, well, what is the price of fish? What's the human price? What's the economic price? What's the ecological price? And how can we actually start bringing those things into the actual price of fish? And you were talking about extractive industries around the world. And I think that's something that a lot of people have been talking about for a long time. Like, what is the price of cutting down a rainforest? I mean, what's the what's the ecological and economic value of having a standing forest as opposed to one that's in board feet? And there's something kind of fundamental about the way our economics is set up currently where we're not internalizing, we're not bringing in the actual price of what something like fish should be. There are some, I'm sort of getting a little off topic here, but there are some promising signs in other directions or some companies that are looking at trying to create fish kind of like the beyond meat of fish. I don't know how good it is. I haven't tried it, but things like that could be helpful because even farmed fish, there's a whole host of environmental and social issues that come with farmed fish. So I think the appetite for fish is huge. And it's not just in the West, it's you know in China and around the world, fish has just become quite popular in a way that it wasn't before. And it's also a bit problematic that there's only certain kinds of fish that are popular. So, you know, in the US, when we think of fish, we think of tuna, we think of salmon, we think of shrimp, we think of a handful of fish, maybe trout. What we don't think about is what is local, seasonal, and abundant. So that even if you're on a lake or near a river or near a stream or near the ocean, what's the fish that's actually native to your bioregion? Is it edible? (laughs) Is it good? And one of the things that's been very encouraging is seeing chefs in particular, but people who have more food and ecological awareness around the country and around the world, starting to really take up the mantle of eating fish that's invasive, you know, and serving it, just cooking it up with some butter and some white wine, and you get less expensive, more abundant fish that's actually helping clean up the lake or helping clean up the coastal area. So starting to think about fish in the way we think about other things, is it fresh, is it local, is it abundant, and is it diverse? There's a way of approaching fish that is actually healthier for us if it's all of those things because we're getting different nutrients. It's not traveling as far. There's a lot of fish fraud. People aren't really as aware of that as they should be, but often, particularly if you're, let's say, at the supermarket and there's sushi and there's salmon in it, often it's not really salmon. It's another white fish that's been dyed pink. So in an ideal world, we can start developing more of an understanding and an approach towards fish that's closer to how we think about things like steak or apples, where I know that the cow that my steak came from is grass-fed, organic, came from like eight miles from here. I live in Northern California, so it gets so extreme that I can like know the name of the cow, the name of the farmer. I mean, it's very, very detailed. 
And if I have an apple, I know that it's from New Zealand and it's conventional. So I have a lot of information about a lot of other food, but fish just sort of shows up. One of the things that we're trying to do is it's around the price of fish and understanding why the price of fish needs to go up to sustain livelihoods and sustain the ocean, but also to encourage a shift in how we approach fish at all and find other fish that is more abundant, that is less expensive, that's actually going to be healthier for you because it's coming from closer to where you live. So all of that, it's a, it's a fairly big shift, but ideally we can start bringing fish into the ecological and food discussions that we have about some of the other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really agree with so much of what you're saying in terms of the folks who live in the regions where there are fish, they should really be getting the first dibs on that fish because so many people, they need that fish. It's subsistence Mm -hmm. for them. It's subsistence hunting, fishing. Otherwise, they don't have the kind of access to supermarkets and co-ops that a lot of us do in the United States. And even, you know, I think about the work I've done with fisheries and fisher folk in Mm -hmm. Alaska. So much of the time they go out, the fishermen work really hard, they have to sell it at a very low cost. Then the people in Alaska don't get to fill up their freezers because they're having to export their food and their livelihood at a lower rate and they have to catch more and more and more just to keep up with the same income so there's a real big issue with the lower price of fish and yeah i i like the idea of eating invasive fish when possible and just really deciding that it's not important for all of us to eat fish if we are not by a source that we can harvest from sustainably and respectfully then it may just not be okay for us to do that. And I know it's hard for some of us who like it or it's become habitual. And of course, there's so much health research about why fish is healthy for our bodies. But if we're hurting people and our ecological systems just to get omegas or something, it doesn't add up. It doesn't actually make sense to compartmentalize the health of ourselves versus the earth. So I I really think it's important to speak to that. And I found this statistic that the United States is the biggest customer of Thai fish and pet food exports from Thailand have more than doubled since 2009, reaching $190 million in 2014. So for all of Mm -hmm. us who are in the United States listening to this, we really actually have a pretty big, as I've just said, we're the biggest customer of Thai fish. So we really have a lot of responsibility in this. So I just wanted to mention that. And as you've spoken to in this conversation, that decades of overfishing has decimated fish stocks in the region surrounding Thailand and that the average catch in both the Gulf of Thailand and the the Andaman Sea, thank you, has plummeted by more than 86% since 1966, making Thai waters among Mm -hmm. the most barren overfished regions on the planet. So it's clear that illegal fishing plays a big role in this, However, we also know that poor management in commercial fishing is also plundering Earth's fisheries. And so I wonder if the boundary between, quote, good industry practices and criminalized, quote, bad actors is as clear cut as we may think. Mm. So from your time reporting on the complexities of the sector, have the lines between illegal and legal fishing been blurred when it comes to overfishing and labor exploitation? Another great question. You know, I think that that's what I was trying to point towards when I was saying that the system itself is really problematic. And within that, you have good actors, as opposed to having a really good system with bad actors. And as an example, I did a story about a company called China Tuna. And this was for The Guardian a little while back. And China Tuna is one of the bigger tuna companies. They go there big boats, they go out, they catch a lot of tuna. I believe they're the top tuna supplier to Japan. So big company. And they were filing for a $100 million IPO. And they had a problem because when you file for an IPO, you're trying to convince investors that the thing that you're doing is only going to go up and you're going to make them a ton of money. But the problem is that tuna stocks are crashing around the world, particularly the high value tuna stocks like bluefin and yellowfin. So they had this issue where they wanted to 
have an IPO, they want to make a ton of money, but they're putting more boats out there to catch fewer fish, which doesn't really add up for investors. So in the IPO, they basically said the emperor has no clothes. And the, you know, everybody knows this, who knows fishing, but it was pretty remarkable because they did it publicly and they said, well, here's the deal. Yes, there's less fish. That might concern investors, but don't worry because even though the world gets together from time to time and sets quotas and says, okay, well, there's this many elephants, we can only catch this much, and China gets this part of the catch, it's up to China to regulate how much fish is actually taken from their piece of the pie, right? So China Tuna in their IPO writes, well, don't worry about this scenario because China doesn't regulate. China basically just lets us catch however much we want. And so we plan to put more boats on the water to go after a dwindling and collapsing fishery. And we're just going to fish and fish and fish as hard as we want. And nobody's really going to stop us. So go ahead and invest in our company. It was only remarkable because they said it. <laughs> like It's completely how this works. It works this way almost everywhere. And so it really is the system itself. I know it's kind of dead and weird language when people who care about oceans start talking about IUU fishing, you know, illegal, underreported, and unregulated. Well, underreported and unregulated is just as bad as illegal. Illegal fishing is when you have a boat like Tunlin's boat with a Thai captain, slave crew. They go into Somali waters. They're not allowed to be there. They have no fishing license for that region. They're not paying the Somali people anything to be there, and they're just stealing fish. That's illegal. But not far behind, and probably worse, to be honest, in terms of the state of fisheries around the world, is underreported and unregulated fishing. And what that means is you have these really big boats. We have boats now that are the size of city blocks that are dragging gigantic miles-long nets through the ocean, clear-cutting the bottom of the ocean, just scooping up everything in their path, and they are not really regulated. So they might be legal, they might have their paperwork in order, and they might have a flag, but again, it could be sort of a flag of Bhutan or some country that doesn't really care what they're doing. And they're just out there taking as much fish as they want, and they're not meeting quotas, and they're not the quotas are there. They're set up to try to protect the fishery, protect the ocean, protect the people who make their livelihood from the sea and protect oceanic communities who need fish. They just ignore it. And there's nobody there who's regulating them or reporting. So the combination of illegal, unregulated and underreported is just a real catastrophe for the ocean and for people who rely on it. So the system itself is pretty janky. Yeah, as many big systems are these days. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. And in researching for this episode, I was curious to understand how fishing practices in Thailand have changed, if at all, in recent years. And I read that after much groundbreaking reporting and international pushback, that the government implemented a broad program of reforms in 2015 to, quote, clean up the Thai fishing industry. In their trafficking in persons report, the Thai government stated that between May 2015 and January 2016, no cases of child labor or forced labor were found, though watchdog groups report otherwise, and I'm not surprised about that. Mm -hmm. And now the EU has since lifted its yellow card warning, and the U.S. has upgraded Thailand's trafficking in persons rating. But I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the effectiveness of these intergovernmental checks and balances and where the crisis currently stands. Yeah, so my reporting partner and I, her name's Becky Palmstrom, she and I broke the story about slavery at sea and slavery on Thai fishing boats in 2012. And that was only eight years ago. And in that time, there's been a lot of follow-up reporting, most notably by the AP, The Guardian, The New York Times. And there's been a lot of action by the EU and the US to try to put economic, social pressure on Thai companies and on the government. And essentially, in the beginning, Thailand was really trying to say that they've made a bunch of changes, but didn't actually make any changes. And as the pressure mounted, they did start to make some changes. And as you've very acutely pointed to, they have put boots on boats. So what that means is they're really upping how many marine police are going into harbors, getting onto boats, checking the work conditions, checking paperwork. But 
the incentive is not there for them to actually find cases, right? The incentive is there for them to not find any cases, but to make a huge show of looking. Because if they find cases, then the economic pressure is not going to let up. So there's sort of this reverse pressure. The incentive is for them to be able to tell the world that we put this many people on this many boats and we haven't found anything and we're totally okay. And that's what they've said. So the EU and the US had very little choice but to lift their economic pressures because they are making an effort. Things like the trafficking in persons report, which is put out by the State Department, it doesn't measure whether or not there's trafficking in a country. What it measures is the government seriousness in trying to address and reverse that trafficking. So when we started reporting on slavery at sea in Thailand, it was absolutely egregious. The government knew about this. They did absolutely nothing. I interviewed a guy who used to be in charge of the biggest port in Thailand in Samut Sakhan. He was the head of the Marine Police there, and he had gone to the Thai government several years before I showed up there to talk to him. And he'd said, listen, we have a real problem with forced labor and, and slavery on these boats, and particularly through our port. And the government said, well, how many men are we talking about? And he estimated, there's estimates are all over the place. So take this with a bit of a grain of salt, but he was in charge of the biggest port. He said, you know, my estimate is it's probably about a million men have been trafficked onto boats in Thailand. And the government said to him point blank, well, our industry is reliant on it, so we can't really change it. And that's why nothing was done. So it started out really, really bad in terms of everybody knows this is happening and nobody's doing anything. And Thailand has gotten significantly better. So they did go up. Now they acknowledge that it's happening. They have enforcement teams and they are putting boots on boats. They're quote unquote looking for it. But the flip side is that they're not finding it, which is pretty wild because I know some of the researchers who work for the NGOs who are finding it and they basically can spend a week in a place and find multiple cases. And the other thing is to watch carefully when it comes to human rights and trafficking is, are there any prosecutions and are there any convictions? So if anything is found, is the captain and or the owner prosecuted and are they convicted? And the answer in Thailand is no. So while it's good that they're acknowledging it and making a show of enforcement, it would be better if they actually were finding cases and prosecuting the offenders. And the thing they're doing that I think is effective is they are making more work visas and more legal pathways on board available for migrants. So that's a really good step in the right direction. But coupling that with strong enforcement would certainly make a much bigger difference. Watching these just harrowing testimonies from survivors, a question that kept turning in my mind was how those rescued are doing today. And the experiences and conditions these men share are just horrifying. From being drugged and forced to work 22-hour shifts to being whipped with toxic stingray tails. And the United Nations found that 59% of trafficked migrants interviewed aboard Thai fishing vessels reported witnessing the murder of a fellow worker. So the physical and psychological trauma mm -hmm. is just really unimaginable and gives context to Patima's estimate that only 10% of the men who return are able to reintegrate back into their communities. So could you speak more in depth about the complexity of returning home and how survivors find peace and healing? Yeah, um... It is a pressure cooker of unimaginable cruelty, really, on board these boats. And often the men will 
kind of they'll have to turn off pieces of themselves that make them human you know they'll have to turn off the part of themselves that tries to think about family or remembers being home because it, it makes it too painful to be where they are there's a number of men who will not sleep they'll try very hard not to sleep because they'll often dream about being somewhere else and then they wake up on board the boat there's a pretty common thing too where if you've been on board for a long time it's dangerous to think for yourself right it's dangerous to have too clear a sense of your own boundaries or your sense of self because essentially you have to do what the captain says or what the slave master says and that's that and if you don't you get punished or killed and so the part of them that has free will and can think through what they want to do for themselves just gets shut down because it's easier these are all survival tactics to get through something that is incredibly incredibly hard so slowly over time the men begin shutting down different pieces of themselves whether it's their empathy or their free will often men will go crazy it's a really common response because it literally is maddening and so when they are able to return home they're facing what a lot of returning vets face or a lot of people who go into extremely different and very intense situations you come back to your community and your community is more or less the same but you're not at all and that feeling of not being able to fit in not being able to go home again when home is all you ever dreamed of when you're on this boat and facing unbelievable cruelty a lot of men just really really pray and hope to return home and then they go home and all of the horrors that happened on board that they had to kind of suppress in order to just to get through all of those come back and these pieces themselves that were functional before they had to shut down in order to survive so the combination of all of it's just really hard for anyone to do by themselves so that is extremely tough for people trying to reintegrate and is really the reason behind LPN's fisherman center to be able to create a place where there is therapy where there is healing where you can work in farming or motorcycle maintenance and you can the men can be around other men who've gone through what they've gone through and be able to integrate to be able to have their experience mirrored and validated by other men but still be off the boat and in society and sort of slowly bridge over into being able to be functional in a community it's extremely important and when the fisherman center opens which should be quite soon it'll be the first one of its kind in the world that is dedicated for men who are have survived this particular form of slavery so it's extremely important not just for the men themselves their psychological health and healing but for the communities that they're going back to so that their trauma is not actually coming out in destructive ways that, that impacts the community mm -hmm. yeah i can i'm sorry did that answer the question or was there another piece to it oh well i mean there's so much to the question and i know i appreciate what you said it's really horrific and i could imagine it being so difficult to return home even if they wanted to because of how much they've been changed and probably like mm -hmm. shame and trauma and mm -hmm. just so much that they'd mm -hmm. have to go through and like it kind of reminds me of vets coming back from war just mm -hmm. you know they come home to a place that hasn't experienced what they've experienced and that loneliness that can come from that so Thank you for saying that. And as we've spoken about today, the crisis of abuse and trafficking within the seafood supply chain spans across such a wide field of actors from the big industry to corrupt law enforcement to bureaucratic governments. And it's interesting because throughout Ghost Fleet, we're made aware that much of this industry, however, is dominated by a few select corporations. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to hear why none of these corporations are explicitly named and your thoughts on the question of who is really to blame for these atrocities. And then maybe a second part to that question is just any of the challenges you faced on the ground and digging for a story that a powerful industry has a vested interest in silencing. Mm. We made the decision not to go after Western corporations. Uh, there is one company that's named in the film. It's a Thai company called PCT Pusaka. And that company 
has an illegal prison and an illegal torture chamber on an island called Benjina. And we did call them out because they were already publicly exposed through Patana's work. The reason we decided not to go after particular companies that are tied to this abuse is because the practice of slavery and forced labor in fishing and the Thai fishing industry is so pervasive. It's the pattern and practice of fishing that if we were to go after one company, like let's say Thai Union, for example, and say, this company is the bad guy, and then that company changed their ways, which actually they have, then it would give the false sense of security that, oh, okay, it's all fine. That's actually not the case, right? There is a lot of pressure that Western companies can bring to bear and are starting to bring to bear. But I think that there's a a totally valid time and place for naming certain companies and saying, okay, you guys are the ones responsible for this. But when the practice is so widespread that if we were to pick a particular boat and trace it back through the supply chain and hit, let's say, Nestle, that's just random. Because if we picked the boat next to it, it would go to a completely different company. (laughs) So at a certain point, when it's this, you know, it's everywhere, it becomes almost unfair and it diminishes the size of the problem to say it's this company or this handful of companies behind it. So that was the big reason that we didn't do it. And I'm sorry, help me with the second part. Oh, right. The the challenges that we faced in uncovering this. So when Becky and I were doing our original reporting back in 2012 that broke the story on Morning Edition, we spent six months throughout Southeast Asia really investigating this issue. How is it that hundreds of thousands of men and boys can cross international borders, go through ports, get onto boats and just disappear? Who knew? Like what governments knew? And when did they know? And why didn't they do anything? Just sort of the standard investigative reporting questions. I was surprised at how much we were able to uncover simply because it is such a pattern in practice. It's really hard to explain or overstate how just normal this had become. I mean, this practice of slavery and forced labor has been going on over 20 years in Thailand. And it's on a scale that it's just how things are done. So we would walk into ports, some of the most notorious ports, for example, Songkhla in Southern Thailand, where it's just very well known that the brothels and some of the seedier bars in the port town will drug a guy's drink. So a Thai guy will walk into a brothel, he'll walk into a bar, he'll have a beer, and he'll wake up on board a boat. So there's a very direct link between the brothels, the bars, and the boat owners. And Becky and I were actually in Songkhla, we would walk into brothels and just ask about it. And they would tell us, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If the boats need men, we help. <laughs> you know. Or we would go, we were in the port itself, standing on a boat, talking to the captain, when a trafficker showed up and put a guy on board the boat. And he was very obviously drugged and super sleepy and not in great shape. And we were politely asked to get off the boat and they were very friendly as they cast off and then they left. And we were in such shock that we couldn't even figure out, what do we do? Do we do something? Like, what do we do? But to them, I mean, this is the middle of the day and they have two blonde reporters standing on the boat with reporting equipment. And it didn't even occur to them that this is a problem because it's the pattern in practice. So that's how important and big this issue is. It's not a bunch of bad actors or a few, a handful of bad captains. It's how the industry has been able to pump cheap fish into the West for decades. So for us, we found it relatively safe, safer than you would imagine to be asking these questions. The biggest threats for us in the original reporting really came from the police because the police were so involved in it. There was a very famous police station in the biggest port town, Sumitsakhan, that would go on to boats and bust men on immigration charges. So you have men who've been trafficked or you just have immigrant fishermen, they're on a boat and the police would bust them on immigration charges, bring them to jail and then sell them straight out of police lockup to other captains. So they're completely involved in it and they're being paid off by the traffickers. And when we started asking questions of the police, then we were followed and definitely felt threatened. But in general, when we first began reporting on it, it was 
just how things are done. It's sort of like asking about immigrant labor in California farms. You're not going to get a lot of pushback because it's just how it is, how it's done. So if things got a little bit dodgier for sure when we were making the film, first of all, because Patima is quite well known now for her work. She's helped rescue over 5,000 men. She's not the most popular person among slave-owning captains and companies or among the police who are paid off to look the other way. But we took a number of security protocols and made sure that we did everything in our power to keep our crew and our team, including Patima and her team, safe. And also, really importantly, to make sure that the men that we talked to were safe, that we didn't just roll into communities and places with a bunch of Westerners and cameras, but we sent in field producers who are Indonesian, since we were filming in Indonesia mainly, to find out, like, is it okay if we talk to this person? Are there company people around here? What's the security situation? Would it be better if we go somewhere else? It would be better if we don't come at all? You don't see that part in the film, but when you're dealing with corrupt, slave-owning, murderous captains and companies, there's a lot of thought that goes into every single situation to try to make sure that everybody stays safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine there being a lot of... (laughs) A lot of decisions you had to make while creating this film, and I'm just so grateful you did. And as we close this conversation, Shannon, I wanted to mention that the film ends on a really striking image of a dinner plate, then rewinds backwards from plate to grocery store to fishing harbor and so on. And the last screen reads, major brands, supermarkets, and restaurants around the world are still selling fish caught by slaves. And I was left with this question of how we might bring humanity to a supply chain that in our fractured society can often feel so far away. So Mm -hmm. for our last question today, I wanted to ask you, more importantly, how can listeners at this moment take action to end overfishing and slavery at sea, whether that be through our choices on consumption or if there's other ways that we can get involved? Yeah, well, first, I definitely want to credit my co-director and lead cinematographer, Jeff, for that powerful sequence at the end of the film. Um, It was really brilliantly conceived. And while I'm very, very grateful and psyched to talk to you today, there's kind of two of us that you're talking to because he was definitely my partner the whole way. But as far as what people can do, there's a range of things. You know, there's going to the GoSleep website, GoSleep.com, and through there you can donate directly to LPN and donate directly to this Fisherman Center and to their work, both raising the awareness of this issue on the global scale and helping men very directly on the front lines. You could also sign up for, it's a very low traffic newsletter. Essentially, what we're trying to do is the team goes to international seafood conferences and goes to the governance organizations and tries to help change this. Every once in a long while, we'll ask people to register their support by sending an email. So there's that. Asking where your fish comes from was really, really important. There was a time when blood diamonds wasn't known as a thing. And the whole industry changed when people started asking, where did this diamond come from? Is this a blood diamond? Is this an ethically sourced diamond? Where did it come from? So even though often your waiter or the fish buyer at the local supermarket might not know the answer, that is kind of the point, just starting to put that awareness into their minds that their customers do want to know that they care how it was caught, where it was caught. Is there any slavery in this fish? Do we know? That is a really, really key piece, along with trying to think a little bit more thoughtfully about the kind of fish that we're eating, maybe eating less fish, but higher quality and more local to the extent you're able to, will have dietary and health benefits for you and certainly help those who are enslaved to try to keep fish abundant and cheap. So those really are the major things. As I mentioned earlier, the UN is trying to reconstruct the laws of the high seas at the moment. So you have the opportunity to go onto their website and send an email urging strong support for labor and fisheries that also could help as well. Oh, thank you, Shannon, for letting us know how we can get involved and not just be complacent in this issue that really just serves these men as sacrifice creatures. Like, there's just so little respect, and I think that they have not been acknowledged 
nearly enough in our culture. And a lot of us don't know. A lot of us don't even know that slaves and brutally treated people are the ones who are catching the dinner or the lunch that we're eating. So such important conversation, Shannon. Thank you so much for being with us on For the Wild. This has been a really potent conversation. Great. Well, I really appreciate you having me and thank you for your thoughtful questions. And I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was by 40 Million Feet. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team. Francesca Glassbell, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger.